Welcome to Catholic Conversations. This is your host, Adrian Fonseca. And today I'm going to be talking about the topic of who can be saved. Who can be saved? That is a very important question, a question that if it's not a question on your mind, then perhaps it should be because at the end of the day, no question really matters except for this one, right? So I was asked to give a talk at St. Elizabeth Seton. If you saw my talk on what is truth, this was the second talk I was asked to give on the topic of who can be saved. And I had to cut it short, though I did go over, but I wanted to do a deep dive on this topic. So this is probably going to be about an hour, maybe a little bit more than an hour on the topic of who can be saved. On the dogma of the church, there is no salvation outside the church. So a couple disclaimers before we get started. I will not be discussing the topic of the fewness of the saved, though it will come up as it's closely related. I will also not be discussing the topic of limbo of the infants, which will probably, it might come up in brief, uh, but I won't be responding to it as a whole. I won't be doing a whole thing on the topic. And not every part of the video will be as persuasive to every individual. So if you're a faithful Catholic, then the authority of the church, the popes, the councils, things like that will have more persuasive power for you. Though if you are non-Catholic, the, maybe the Bible references will be more helpful. Uh, so it just depends. So not every argument is for every person. You have to take it as it is. So if there are, and I'm also going to be relying on the fact that many people who are watching have a decent background knowledge on the church and her faith, but I will try to give background information when it becomes necessary. If there are any particular issues that I failed to raise or you'd like a whole episode dedicated to, let me know in the comment section down below. And finally, I know this video is long, and that's because it's a really big topic, and I don't want to leave it shortchanged. But listen to it all before making a judgment against me or accusing me of heresy or raising objections, because hopefully I would have exhausted the objections, at least I hope. Uh, plus, at the very end of this episode, I promise to leave you on a message of hope that should leave you with joy. So I, I really uh, want to encourage you to stay till the very end, because if you do, I promise you it will be worth it. Uh, this message of hope at the end is a beautiful story that I want to share with you. Okay, without further ado, let's jump into it. But before I do, make sure to hit some like, subscribe, hit the bell notification, and comment down below. And what should you comment down below? Comment down below, um, I don't know, what is your favorite um, beverage. What's your favorite beverage? Comment that down below. And it's just to help with the algorithm and stuff like that. So anyway, uh, God bless you. Let's get started. And it's some of it, I kind of format it like a talk because this is originally written like a talk, but I'll jump in and out of that kind of style. So the topic is no salvation outside the church. John chapter 14, verses one through seven. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house, there are many mansions. If not, I would have told you because I go to prepare a place for you. And if I shall go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you also may be. And whither I go, you know, in the way, you know, Thomas saith to him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest and how can we know the way? Jesus saith to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. If you had known me, you would with, without doubt have known my Father also. And from henceforth you shall know him, and you have seen him. Praise be to thee, O Christ. Jesus saith to him, I am the way, and the truth, and the life. 
No man cometh to the Father but by me. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Extra ecclesium nolus salus. There is no salvation outside the church. This is a hard saying. Who can accept this? Are the words of the Jews upon hearing the difficulty, difficult teachings of our Lord. This most esteemed mystery of the faith has always been and everywhere taught by the church. I'll first explain to you how we are saved, and then I'll explain this most important dogma of the faith and those who to no fault of their own do not know the church and the dire consequences of denying such an important truth. But first, let us salute the Virgin Mary. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady of Fatima, pray for us. Our Lady of Pompeii, pray for us. Our Lady Hammer of Heretics, pray for us. St. Vincent Ferrer, pray for us. St. Leonard of Port Maurice, pray for us. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, amen. In the time of Noah, all of creation had turned wicked. God, seeing the evil of men, decided to destroy every man on earth. But Noah was a righteous man. Holy Writ says of him, Noah was a just and perfect man in his generations. He walked with God. He tells Noah that he plans to end all flesh on earth, to then build an ark to his exact specifications. He tells him to gather his wife, sons, and their wives, to bring a particular amount of every animal on earth onto the ark, to bring the exact amount of food he commanded. And Noah did all these things which God had commanded him. For yet a while, and after seven days, I will reign upon the earth forty days and forty nights. And I will destroy every substance that I have made from the face of the earth. The day came, and the floodgates of heaven were opened, and the rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. And the waters prevailed beyond measure upon the earth, and all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. And all flesh was destroyed that moved upon the earth, both of fowl and of cattle and of beasts, and of all creeping things that creep upon the earth, and all men. And all things wherein there is the breath of life of the earth died. And he destroyed all the substances that were upon the earth, from man even to beast, and the creeping things and the fowls of the air, and they were destroyed from the earth. And Noah only remained and they that were with him in the ark. The fathers of the church all recognize this to be a type or a symbol of the church. The ark is the church, outside of which all drown in the waters of the deluge. I'll return to this point later on in the talk. First, let's go over the basics of the faith. I assume y'all are aware of the basic gospel message, but just in case, we'll go through it briefly so we all understand who can be saved. So point number one is we are creatures. God is the creator. There is an infinite abyss between us metaphysically and God. The metaphysically, we are inferior to God. Just as this difference between a man and a mosquito is vast. So too, the difference between a man and an angel is vast. But the difference between us and God is not simply vast, but it is an infinite abyss between us, metaphysically infinite abyss between us. Now, why did God create us? God created us in, in order to show forth his goodness and to share with us his everlasting happiness in heaven. God made us to know him, to love him, and to serve him in this life and be happy with him in the next. The second point that's very important to remember is that we are sinners. So add the metaphysical abyss that we have between us and God, a moral abyss between us and God, because 
God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. That was a choice. He was able to do that because he is God and he chose to condescend to our level. However, we inherit original sin through the sin of Adam and Eve. So now we lost the gift of beatitude. By actual sin, we merit hell. By original sin, we gain concupiscence and the loss of beatitude. So that is the thing. That's one of the things that's very important to remember. Sin enters into the world. Now that sin has entered into the world, the only way that we can uh, abridge that gap is through sacrifice. So now sin enters the world, and what happens? We create fig leaves for ourselves to try to cover ourselves because we have shame, we have sin. And what does God do? God kills an animal, and he clothes us with the clothing of animals. So God clothes us, and through wow, he sacrifices an animal. So this shows forth the fact that we need a redeemer. So God knew that it would be difficult for us because we see through the salvific history, which that would be a whole topic to go through in itself. I'm trying to rush through it. God gives to us the Ten Commandments with Moses. In the Ten Commandments, it is considered the natural law. St. Thomas Aquinas talks about how the Ten Commandments can be known by all men. It is the law that is written onto the hearts of man. Because most people can't figure it out on their own, God revealed it to ourselves, not because they can't do it physically, but because it's difficult and most people will not spend the time to figure it out. So God decided to reveal it to us so we can know it more easily. And that is really the case with a lot of revelation, at least things that are also according to the natural law. So God becomes fully God and fully man because God needs to pay with this because we need to pay an infinite debt. And we can't because we are finite creatures. Because God is infinitely greater than us, our offense against him is infinite. Just as it is the case if we offend our family, if we, if like, if for instance, if you slap someone in the face, a random stranger in the face, that's bad. If you slap your sibling in the face, that's worse. If you slap your mother in the face, that is unconscionable. That is a horrible thing to do. But if you slap the infinite God in the face... That is the worst possible thing you could do because God is infinitely greater than us. As you see here in the hierarchy, the greater the person is, the more responsibility you have and the greater debt you have to pay, the greater horror it is that we do, that we offend. And because God is infinitely above us, we have an infinite debt to pay. But because we cannot pay an infinite debt, our Lord became man because as God, he can pay an infinite debt. And as man, he can, he is, it is just that he be able to do it because if man offended God, man must pay the debt. So that's why our Lord became man. At least it is fitting in that sense. Our Lord being infinite, it was a super abundant payment for our sins. So he pays for all of our sins. Our Lord became flesh in the blessed Virgin Mary. So he reveals himself to us. He reveals the Holy Trinity. He reveals the sacraments. And it is by baptism and the theological virtues of faith, hope, and charity, namely charity, that we receive the the gift of sanctifying grace. All these things come through baptism. As scripture says, baptism now saves you. It is the loving sacrifice that gives us the grace to love God back, those theological virtues. This points out that it is a gratuitous gift from God that we are saved. Because remember, there's infinite abyss between us and God, metaphysically and now morally. Because by original sin, we lose the beatific vision. By actual sin, we earn hell. So in order to be reconciled 
it has to be on God's part because it is not according to justice that we are saved. It is according to mercy that we are saved. That's very important to Roe to recognize. That is basically to say we are not owed heaven. We are, in fact, due to our original sin, due to original sin, we are not owed heaven. Due to our actual sin, we are owed hell. So our Lord has set up a means by which we can be saved. And if we follow those means, then we will be saved. And a very, very, very simple articulation, all you need to know is that if you die in a state of sanctifying grace, you are saved. If you die in a state of mortal sin, you are damned. It's as simple as that. So what is the purpose of breaking this down for y'all? It is to show that God has willed that all be saved and come to know knowledge of the truth. It is also to show that he did so in a particular way. This was done not as an obligation, but as a mercy because he loves us. Scripture says that fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Thus, we must understand we all deserve hell. None of us can earn heaven. We are not owed heaven. It is a gift offered to us by the Father. And just as you can reject a gift from a friend, so too can you reject a gift from God. If you remember nothing else from what I have said, let me break this down in the simplest manner possible by anticipating some of your questions. Question number one, who will be saved? Those who die in a state of sanctifying grace. Who will be damned? Those who die in a state of mortal sin. How is one placed into sanctifying grace? By faith and baptism. Can one lose sanctifying grace? Yes, by one mortal sin. Can one reconcile with God? Yes, by the sacrament of confession. This may now sound very simple. So what does this have to do with no salvation outside the church? When you are baptized, you are made a member of the mystical body of Christ. That is the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Our Lord then commanded us to obey two commandments. Love God with all your heart, mind, and soul and power. Then the second is like unto it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now you ask, what does it mean to love God? Well, Jesus tells us, if you love God, you will keep his commandments. In the gospel of Matthew, our Lord tells Peter that thou art Peter and upon this rock, I shall build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Here, the church was founded as the pillar and foundation of truth. It was from the church that the Bible came. It was not until 1,500 years later during the Protestant Revolution that anyone would have accepted the idea of an invisible church apart from the bishops of the church. You might be thinking to yourself, all right, Adrian, you have made these claims, now prove it, and so I shall. From the testimony of Holy Scripture, first and foremost, Mark chapter 16, verse 16, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, and he that believeth not shall be condemned. Very simple. Baptism is necessary to be saved. And belief. 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord delayeth not his promises as some imagine, but dealeth patiently for your sake, not willing that any should perish, but that all should return to penance. So God wills that no, none should be damned, and he wills that all should return to penance, meaning you have to do penance. God wills that. Will you correspond with his will? Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the grace of God, life everlasting in Christ Jesus our Lord. There you go. The wages of sin is death. So if you sin, you die. Meaning the death, hell. Acts 4.12, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given to man whereby we must be saved. There you go. There is no salvation in any other it is only by the name of our Lord that you can be saved. Ephesians 2.8, or here we go, uh, John 
24. Therefore I said to you then that you shall die in your sins. For if you believe not that I am he, you shall die in your sins. Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you are saved through faith and not of yourselves, for it is the gift of God. Salvation is a gift from God. You are not owed it. John 3.18. He that believeth in him is not judged, but he that do not believe is already judged, because he believeth not in the name of the only begotten Son of God. John 3, 3, Jesus answered him and said to him, Amen, amen, I say to thee, unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. If you're not born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. Matthew 7, 21, Not everyone that saith to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doth the will of the Father who is in heaven, he shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. This also refers to people who are claimed to be Christians, claimed to be followers of Christ, who do not do the will of the Father. What is the will of the Father? To be part of the Holy Catholic Church. John 14, 6, Jesus saith to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. There is no way to go to the Father but by Christ. Luke 13, 3, No, I say to you, but unless you shall do penance, you shall all likewise perish. 1 John 5, 13, These things I write to you that you may know that you have eternal life, you who believe in the name of the Son of God. John 10, 9, I am the door by me. If any man enter in, he shall be saved, and he shall go in and go out and shall find pastures. 1 Peter 3, 20 through 21, who had been, who, which, had, which had been some time incredulous when they waited for the patience of God in the days of Noah, when the ark was a building, wherein in a few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. Whereunto baptism, being of the like form, now saveth you also, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the examination of a good conscience towards God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is huge. This is huge. He's making the analogy of Noah. The first pope is Peter. Peter is making the analogy of Noah as relating to baptism, where only eight souls were saved by water, whereunto baptism, being of the like form, now saveth you also. This is huge. Hebrews 13, 5. Let your manners be without covetousness, Con- uh, contended with such things as you have, for he hath said, I will not leave thee, neither will I forsake thee. Hebrews eleven six 6-7. But without faith it is impossible to please God, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is and is a rewarder to them that seek him. By faith Noah... Having received an answer concerning those things, which as yet were not seen, moved with fear, framed the ark for the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and was instituted heir of the justice, which is by faith. So now we see that St. Paul, which there's a debate among who wrote Hebrews, but I'm just assuming St. Paul for now. St. Paul makes the analogy of Noah. Yet again, 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 5, for this is a good, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator of God and men, the man Christ Jesus. This is another exciting of, of a reference that God wants you to be saved. He wants you to have the knowledge of the truth. He wills it. And we're going to, this is going to be a very important point later on in, in this talk. 2 Thessalonians 1 through 8, or chapter 1, verse 8, in a flame of fire, giving vengeance to them who know not God and who obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That means that fire is given to them who do not know God and do not follow the gospel. It's very important. Okay, you're saying you gave me a bunch of quotes, big deal. That can all be interpreted in a bunch of different ways. So here's a testimony of the fathers, the doctors, the saints, the popes, and the church councils all the way from the third century to today. 
and Athanasius Creed in the third century, which we will pray at the end of this talk. Whoever wishes to be saved must above all keep the Catholic faith. For unless a person keeps this faith whole and entire, he will undoubtedly be lost forever. This is what he who wishes to be saved must believe about the Trinity. It is also necessary for eternal salvation that he believe steadfastly in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Catholic faith. Everyone must believe it firmly and steadfastly. Otherwise, he cannot be saved. In the 16th century, in the, the creed of the Council of Trent, I shall most constantly hold and profess this true Catholic faith, outside of which no one can be saved, which I now freely profess and truly hold. Pope Benedict XV in 1914, such is the nature of Catholicism that it does not admit or of more or less, but must be held as whole or as a whole rejected. Meaning what? You can't just have pieces of the faith. You must have the faith entirely. If you do not have it entirely, you have rejected it entirely. St. Irenaeus, who died in AD 202, meaning he lived in the 100s in the time of of the post-apostolic uh, fathers. The church is the entrance to life. All others are thieves and robbers. On the account, we are bound to avoid them. The church is the entrance to life. That's very important. Origen, who is not a church father, he died in 254. He's a witness of the early church, certainly. He says, quote, let no man deceive himself. Outside this house, that is, outside the church, no one is saved. Very clear articulation of what we are talking about. St. Cyprian in AD, he died in AD 258, said, He who has turned his back on the church of Christ shall not come to the rewards of Christ. He is an alien, a worldling, an enemy. He, you cannot have God for, the father, for your father if you have not the church for your mother. Our Lord warns us when he says, He that is not with me is against me. He that gathereth not with me scattereth. Whosoever breaks the peace and harmony of Christ acts against Christ. Whoever gathers elsewhere than in the church scatters the church of Christ. St. Ambrose died in A.D. 397, says, quote, Where Peter is, therefore, there is the church. Where the church is, there is not death, but life eternal. Although many call themselves Christians, they usurp the name and do not have the reward. This is A.D. Well, as late as AD 397, because that's when he died. And the, he's already saying that there are those who call themselves Christians who are not part of the church. They do not cling themselves to Peter, the Pope, and therefore they do not have the reward, salvation. Bishop Nicita of Remicia, Rem, Remiciana, who died in AD 415, said, You must know that it is the one Catholic church established throughout the world, and with it you must remain in unshaken communion. There are indeed other so-called churches with which you can have no communion. These churches cease to be holy because they were deceived by the doctrines of the devil to believe and behave differently from what Christ commanded and from the tradition of the apostles. Very important witness to the other church died in 415 saying that there are churches who claim to be churches who are actually not, who follow doctrines of the devil and behave differently from what Christ commanded. And from the traditions of the apostles, meaning we must hold to the traditions of the apostles. St. Augustine, and this is a firebrand of a passage. This is my favorite quote here. St. Augustine died in 430 AD. No man can find salvation except in the Catholic Church. Outside the Catholic Church, one can have 
everything except salvation. One can have honor. One can have the sacraments. One can sing hallelujah. One can answer amen. One can have faith in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost and preach it too. But never can one find salvation except in the Catholic Church. Honestly, it sounds like he's talking about Protestants here, actually, what it sounds like to me. Of course, he's not because the Protestants don't come for another thousand years. But in A.D. 430, he's saying these things. Let's move on. St. Fulgentius died in 533, quote, most firmly hold and never doubt that not only pagans, but also all Jews, all heretics, and all schismatics who finish this life outside of the Catholic Church will go into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Let's skip ahead. St. Thomas Aquinas, who died in 1274, said, quote, There is no entering into salvation outside the church, just as in the time of the deluge there were none outside the ark, which denotes the church. St. Peter Cantius, who died in 1597, said, quote, Outside of this communion, as outside of the ark of Noah, there is absolutely no salvation for mortals, not for Jews or pagans who never receive the faith of the church, nor for heretics who, having received it, corrupted it, neither for the excommunicated or those who, for any other serious cause, deserve to be put away and separated from the body of the church like pernicious members. For the rule of Cyprian and Augustine is certain. He will not, who, he will not have God for his father who would not have the church for his mother. St. Robert Bellarmine in 1621, this is an amazing quote as well. Outside the church, there is no salvation. For this reason, the church is compared with the Ark of Noah, because just as during the deluge, everyone perished who was not in the Ark. So now those who perish who are not in the church. Pope Pelagius II in 578 to 590 said, if slain outside the church, he cannot attain the reward of the church. Pope St. Gregory the Great, which points out that if you are slain outside the church, meaning martyrs, if you are not in the church, you cannot be a martyr. Pope St. Gregory the Great, 590 to 604, now the Holy Church universal proclaims that God cannot be truly worshipped saving within herself, asserting that all they that are without her shall never be saved. You cannot truly worship God except in the church. That's what St. Gregory the Great says. Pope Innocent III, 1198 to 1216 said, With our hearts we believe and with our lips we confess, but one church, not that of the heretics, but the holy Roman Catholic and apostolic church, outside which we believe that no one is saved. Pope Leo XII in 1823 to 1829, we profess that there is no salvation outside the church, for the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. Pope Gregory XVI in 1831 to 1846, it is not possible to worship God truly except in her. All who are outside her will not be saved. Pope Pius IX, 1846, 1878, it must be held by faith that outside the apostolic Roman church, no one can be saved. That this is the only ark of salvation that he who shall not have entered therein will perish in the flood. Pope Leo XIII, 1878-1903, this is our last lesson to you. Receive it. Engrave it in your minds, all of you. By God's commandment, salvation is to be found nowhere but in the church. Pope Pius XI, 1922-1939, the Catholic Church alone is keeping the true worship. This is the font of truth. 
This is the house of faith. This is the temple of God. If any man enter not here, or if any man go forth from it, he is a stranger to the hope of life and salvation. Furthermore, in this one church of Christ, no man can be or remain who does not accept, recognize, and obey the authority and supremacy of Peter and his legitimate successors. Pope Pius XII in 1939 to 1958, by divine mandate, the interpreter and guardian of the scriptures and the dispository of sacred tradition living within her, the church alone is the entrance to salvation. The, the Lateran Council, the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215, one indeed is the universal church of the faithful, outside which no one at all is saved. The papal bull Unum Sanctum in 1302, we declare, say, define, and pronounce that it is absolutely necessary for the salvation of every human creature to be subject to the Roman pontiff. Council of Florence in 1438 to 1445, the most holy Roman church, firmly believes, professes, and proclaims that not that those not living within the Catholic Church, not only pagans, but also Jews and heretics and schismatics, cannot become participants in eternal life, but will depart into everlasting fire, which was prepared for the devil and his angels. Unless before the end of life, the same have been added to the flock, and that the unity of the ecclesiastical body is so strong that only to those remaining in it are the sacraments of the church of benefit for salvation. And do fasting, almsgiving, and other functions of piety and exercises of Christian service produce eternal reward. And that no one, whatever almsgiving he has practiced, even if he has shed blood for the name of Christ, can be saved unless he has remained in the bosom and unity of the Catholic Church. This is a very, very, very important because he's saying that you can do any amount of good. You can give alms. You can do all these practices of goodwill. You can even die for the name of Christ, but you will not be saved unless you remain in the bosom and unity of the Catholic Church. This is from the Council of Florence, an ecumenical council of the church. Pope John Paul I, people are talking about Pope John Paul I being canonized from a general audience on September 13th, 1978. One of the only things that he has said, because he died after 30 days, it is difficult to accept some truths because truths of faith are of two kinds, some pleasant, others unpalatable to our spirit. For example, it is pleasant to hear that God has so much tenderness for us, even more tenderness than a mother for her children. Other truths, on the contrary, are hard to accept. God must punish if I resist. This is not agreeable. But here's the kicker. It is clear that Jesus and the church are the same thing. Indissoluble, inseparable. Christ and the church are only one thing. It is not possible to say, I believe in Jesus. I accept Jesus, but I do not accept the church. End quote. When the poor Pope, when the bishops, the priests, and this is continuing on, when the poor Pope, when the bishops, the priests propose the doctrine, they are merely helping Christ. It is not our doctrine. It is Christ's. We must merely guard it and present it. Even John Paul I says here, you have to accept the church. And he says even, I don't want to say this. And it's not my doctrine. It is Christ's doctrine. I merely must guard it and I must present it. Pope John Paul II 
He says, quote, the mystery of salvation is revealed to us and is continued and accomplished in the church. And from this genuine and single source, like humble, useful, precious, and chaste water, it reaches the whole world. Dear young people and members of the faithful, like Brother Francis, we have to be conscious and absorb this fundamental and revealed truth consecrated by tradition. There is no salvation outside the church. From her alone there flows surely and fully the life-giving force destined in Christ and in his spirit to renew the whole of humanity and therefore directing every human being to become a part of the mystical body of Christ. Now, this all seems quite dour and sad. You may be thinking about those who are ignorant of the truth and who have not rejected the truth because they did not know it. This I will address in a minute. Before I move on, it is both bad news and good news, if you think about it, because the bad news is that there are many who will not be saved, right? The good news is, though, is that God has set up a way for us to be saved through the church. So this is the mandate from us, from God, to us, that we must save those souls by bringing them into the church, by missionary activity, by going out. This is what caused people to join convents, to join religious orders, to become missionaries, because they knew that there was no salvation outside the church. So they were going to give their lives to bring those into the church. This is huge. So moving to this point, Vatican Council II, and in the decree of the church's missionary activity, is very clear on this point. We read in Adjentis, So although in many, in ways known to himself, God can lead those who through no fault of their own are ignorant of the gospel to the faith without which it is impossible to please him. Adjentis 1 and 7, paragraph 1, uh, or chapter 1, verse 7, something like that. I don't know. I forget. Uh, how can we reconcile this with everything we just heard from the church? The answer is a combination of two factors. One, invincible ignorance, and two, God will have will have all men to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. I want to preface this by saying this is not an exception to the rule, but instead is a nuance. It is wrong for people to say this. there's an exception. There is no exceptions. There is a nuance that it stays within the bounds of what we've been talking about, and we're going to talk about this next. Now, of course, some people would just say that this is a, an error in Vatican II, and I'm sympathetic to that. However, I'm attempting to read it in continuity, and so this is the way to do so. So let me give you an example of someone who has who has what, it, what is known as baptism of blood. According to Basil, 40 soldiers who had openly confessed themselves Christians were condemned to the, pref to the prefect to be exposed naked upon a frozen pond near Sebast on a bitterly cold night, and that might freeze to death. Among the confessors, one yielded and leaving his companions sought the warm baths near the lake, which had been prepared for any who might prove inconstant. Upon immersion into the cauldron, the one who yielded went into shock and immediately died. One of the guards, Alglaius, who set to keep watch over the martyrs and beheld at this moment a supernatural brilliancy, overshadowed them. He at once proclaimed himself a Christian, threw off his garments, and joined the, 30, the remaining 39. Thus the number of 40 remained complete. At daybreak, the stiffened bodies of the confessors, which still showed signs of life, were burned and the ashes cast into a river. Christians, however, collected the precious remains, and the relics were distributed through many cities. 
In this way, veneration of the 40 martyrs became widespread and numerous churches were erected in their honor. The 40th soldier converted on the spot. It does not seem that he was baptized by water, but it was by his martyrdom for the true faith that saved him, or what is known as baptism of blood. This isn't a separate baptism. This is God granting the grace of water baptism to his martyrs. It is by their blood that they have been baptized. Now, some would argue that they he was baptized. I've heard other people say that in this circumstance, uh, the frozen pond, there was enough water that there was they were able to uh, actually be baptized. So that may be the case, but we'll continue. Then there is baptism of desire. This is for those who have the explicit intention of wanting to become Catholic, but die before baptisms. This is very important. People would like to overly broad, overly broaden, rather, this idea to say that anybody with any intention of wanting, of being united to the church can be saved. This is where you get the error of Rahner and the error of von Balthasar and the error of Bishop Barron. If you have an implicit desire to be saved, then you will be saved, is the idea. This is false. St. Thomas Aquinas speaks of this in his Summa saying, quote, Secondly, the sacrament of baptism may be wanting to anyone in reality, but not in desire. For instance, when a man wishes to be baptized, but by some ill chance he has forestalled by death before receiving baptism. And such a man can obtain salvation without being actually baptized on account of his desire for baptism, which desire is the outcome of faith that works by charity, whereby God, whose power is not tied to the visible sacraments, sanctifies man inwardly. Hence, Ambrose says of Valtinian, who died while yet a catechumen, I lost him whom I was to regenerate, but he did not lose the grace he prayed for, end quote. So what is the example that's given? Is given a catechumen, someone who has explicit faith, has explicit intention of being part of the one true church. He must desire to be part of the one true church. It's not just a general desire. It's not simply this desire, some inferior desire. And it's not even a desire that one day you might want to be Catholic. It is an explicit desire that you have an intention, you're making steps towards that goal, but you die before it. Okay, you're saying to yourself, okay, great, but that's not what we are talking about. We mean our Protestant family members or those who about the people that are in secluded tribes in the middle of nowhere. Or what about those in America before the coming of the Catholic Church? Ignorance of which we are bound to know is sinful. Ignorance of which that it is impossible for us to know is not held against us. Our Lord says as much in John 15, 22, quote, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Our Lord affirms this on the cross when he says, Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Here he gives ignorance as a reason for lowering culpability, but forgiveness for those crimes. But too much who is given, much is expected, which is why Catholics and most importantly clerics will be judged more harshly. For we are expected to learn the faith well and keep all the commandments of God. So you might be thinking, this is terrible, then wouldn't it be better to leave the people in their ignorance? For then they have a greater chance at heaven. No, you misunderstand me. Yes, they will not be culpable for sins of which they knew nothing of. However, they are still bound to obey the commandments that are natural to every man. 
This is known as the natural law, which a whole show could be done on the topic of the natural law itself. The Ten Commandments are all of the natural law. Of mercy, God revealed the law, knowing that most people would not take the time or effort to discern these truths. St. Thomas affirms that those who adhere to the natural law, God will reveal the truth to them, saying, quote, Thus, if someone so brought up followed the direction of natural reason and seeking good and avoiding evil, we must certainly hold that God would either reveal to him through internal inspirations what had to be believed or would send some preacher to the faith of the faith to him as he sent Peter to Cornelius. Thus, they will be given the opportunity to accept the true faith and be baptized either by water or by desire. Now, this is very important to note. You are not saved by ignorance. You are not saved by ignorance. This is a common mistake. People will say, well, you had invincible ignorance. Well, invincible ignorance does not save you. It is an excuse for your sins, which you can readily use. However, you are only excused from those things that you are invincibly ignorant. If someone is a not exposed to the gospel, yet they still violate the Ten Commandments. They lie, they cheat, they steal. They do these things that are violations of the Ten Commandments. They are culpable of that because they should know that. And if you violate the Ten Commandments, and let's talk about Protestants in the same vein. Protestants are baptized, then they are brought into sanctifying grace, right? But if you break the Ten Commandments, if you break, if you commit a sin, you are now in a state of mortal sin. How do you get back into sanctifying grace? The only means by which our Lord has set up for us to be saved from our sins after baptism is through the sacrament of confession. First, let's illustrate the point on pagans, those who are completely ignorant, who are truly invincibly ignorant of the gospel, because I would argue most people in the 21st century are not, in fact, invincibly ignorant. To illustrate this truth, I want to let me to read two brief stories from the life of St. Columba, the Apostle of Scotland. Quote, one day while laboring in his evangelical work in the principal island of Hebrides, the one who lies nearest to the mainland, he cried out all at once. My sons, today you will see an ancient Pictish chief who has kept faithfully all his life the precepts of the natural law. Arrive in this island, he comes to be baptized and to die. Immediately after, a boat was seen to approach the shore with a feeble old man seated in the pro, who was recognized as the chief of one of the neighboring tribes. Two of his companions brought him before the missionary, to whose words as repeated by the interpreter. He listened attentively. When the discourse was ended, the old man asked to be baptized and immediately breathed his last breath. He was buried in the very spot where he had just been brought to shore. Notice, he kept the faith, or he kept the natural law his entire life. He was faithful to the precepts of the natural law his whole life. And what did God do? God sent a missionary, and he was baptized, and he was saved. At a later date, in one of his last missions, when himself an old man, he traveled along the banks of the Loch Ness. Although always in the district north of the mountain range of the Dorsum Brittany, he said to his disciples who accompanied him, Let us make haste and meet the angels who have come down from heaven and who await for us beside a picked, who has done well according to the natural law. 
during his whole life to extreme old age, we must baptize him before he dies. Then hastening his steps, outstripping his disciples as much as was possible at his great age, he reached a retired valley now called Glen Urquhart, where he found the old man who awaited him. Here was no longer any need of interpreter, which makes it probable that Columba in his old age had learned the Pictish dialect. The old Pict heard him preach, was baptized, and with joyful serenity gave up to God the soul who, has, who was awaited by those angels whom Columba saw. Thus we see that it is much harder for those who are ignorant of the true faith to be saved. For this is a special grace given to those who genuinely seek Christ during their life. They are not saved by ignorance. They are saved by the true faith. The problem of what pe- of most people is that they do not live according to the natural law. How many people do you know that are non-Catholics who have committed a mortal sin? Have they lied, cheated, dishonored their parents? Have they stolen, gorged themselves with food, been envious of others, or any number of other sins? If they have committed these sins, which we are all bound to know are evil, how can they have the forgiveness of their sins? How can they be reconciled with God if they have not the sacrament of confession, which Christ has set up for our salvation? What means do they have to attain this salvation? This is very important. You are not saved by ignorance. You are saved by the true faith. And if a missionary does not come, God will send an angel. But this is only for those who truly seek and live their life according to the natural law. This is the importance of this dogma. This is why it is so important that we not only believe in this dogma, but meditate upon it. For unless souls are saved, nothing is saved. It was this dogma that gave initial motivation for the missionaries to abandon everything and go into the pagan nations, risking death and misery. This was the second commandment of God, to love your neighbor. What does it mean to love your neighbor? To will the good for him for the sake of him. What is the ultimate good? Heaven, union with God. This is why we must evangelize. We must obey the commandments of our Lord to go out into all nations, teaching them all that I have commanded you, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Let me articulate this point, not from me, but from Penn Gillette, a famous atheist magician who was approached by a Protestant fan who offered him a Bible. He recounts the story in the following way, quote, I have always said, Gillette explained, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect them at all. If you believe that there is a heaven and a hell and people are going, uh, could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think it's not really worth telling them because it would make it socially awkward? How much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate someone to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? If I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that the truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point that I tackle you. And this is more important than that. How true is this? If you really love your neighbor, you will do everything in your power you have for them to accept Christ's holy church. But we can't tackle our loved ones out of the way. They have to willingly accept it. They have to make that decision for themselves. So, I want to leave you with a message of hope before we end. And then I want to address a couple um, objections. Actually, let me address one objection first before I move on to the story here. The objection of St. Dismas 
this is the objection, one of the biggest objections I've heard. The bit, one of the biggest objections I've heard is the fact that they say that St. Dismas was saved, yet he was not baptized. So if he was saved, but he was not baptized, why can't others be saved? They were not baptized. And they made the argument of Protestants or others like that. However, there is a major difference. Here's a number of differences. One, according to St. Augustine, he actually was baptized. Now, this is probably improbable in my opinion, actually. I'm not certain I agree with the idea that he was baptized. It seems very unlikely. However, there is another reason. The other reason is that he there was not yet the church. The church was established on Pentecost, so he was still under the dispensation of the old law. And our Lord, being Christ himself, being God himself, granted him that. I also would like to point out that St. Dismas, according to tradition, met the Holy Family when they tried to rob them, according to tradition. So he was aware of our Lord. At least he ran into them. They were lived in the same area. Is it not improbable to think that he had heard him preach? Is it not probable that on the cross he made a baptism of desire? That he knew what the church was and he desired to be according to it while he was on the cross. Is that possible? Just an idea. So here, those are a couple ideas of um, what how you could respond to that kind of objection. It has not sufficient. I could do a, more on that. And if there's any other good objections, let me know, and I will hope to address them in the future. One comment from Damon. As for St. Dismas, while it be unknown if he was baptized or by what baptism he received, Jesus said he will be in paradise that day. And with that, he would have been fully received into the church. That's true. It's also important to note that when he, our, when our Lord tells him, today you will be with me in paradise, he didn't actually go to paradise that day, right? Because he didn't, he, our Lord didn't go to paradise that day. He said, today you will be with me in paradise. But where does our Lord go? Our Lord descends into hell, right? He descends into the bosom of Abraham. And so there, St. Dismas follows. And that is a paradise that he talks about. And then it is only afterwards, whenever he goes outward, that he goes to heaven. Whenever after the ascension, right? So, and it's clear that he is under the dispensation of the old law. Because in the old law, you would go to the limbo of the fathers before you would go to heaven. So that's uh, the reference it's also another important thing to note for St. Dismas. The other thing is they talk about the unbaptized infants. Now, this is very controversial, and I don't want to do a whole thing on it, but unbaptized infants, they have not committed actual sin. And so, like I mentioned in the beginning, without actual sin, you do not earn hell. But because of original sin, you do not deserve heaven. So it is the common teaching of the church, according up until today, up until very recently, that up until I think JP2 was the first person to start positing uh, to deny this this idea that the unbaptized babies went to limbo because they did not have the grace of baptism nor did they have baptism desire because they had no desires yet they didn't have that will um so they could not go to heaven yet they did not commit actual sin so they could not go to hell so they went to limbo in which according to many of the fathers, is a place of perfect natural happiness. And some say that the angel, the guardian angels, will, are there and they provide them with lights. They give them knowledge. They give them these things. That is a natural paradise. Think of like Garden of Eden kind of thing. But it's not heaven and it's not hell. 
Now, a lot more can be said about limbo of the infants, but I think that's also an important thing to note that we should baptize. This is the reason why we baptize babies. We baptize infants. We baptize these children for the use of reason because we want them to go to heaven. Everything the church does and, and teaches is bound up with the idea that we desire the salvation of souls. That's the, that's the big thing. That's the thing that's most important. Hermann Cohen was a German Jew, an outstanding concert pianist, a convert to the Catholic faith, and a scaled Carmelite monk. He was born November, 18th, uh, November 1820 in Hamburg into the family of a wealthy baker, banker. As a child reared in the orthodox traditions of his religion, he was highly sensitive to the realm of the sacred and enjoyed praying in the synagogue. He graduated with distinction from a Protestant grammar school. Showing extraordinary talent in music from the age of four and a half, he obtained his parents' permission to study piano along with his older brother. Being of frail health, he took lessons at the home of a famous professor, who lost no time in infecting his impressionable pupil with his worldly interest. From a relatively young age, Herman shrugged off every trapping of his religious formation. Sweet and amenable until then, he suddenly became quite unbearable. With his parents, he was capricious and demanding, rebelling at the slightest sign of resistance on their part of, to his desires. As a 10-year-old child prodigy, he made a trip to Frankfurt, where he was received enthusiastically into princely courts. Having found suitable backing, he set out for the city of his dreams, Paris, where he promptly won fame as a man of genius. Paris at that time was full of astounding artists, the 22-year-old composer Franz Lisette considered them a very upright young man, at first declined to take Hermann as a student, but on hearing him play, changed his mind. The boy became Lisette's favorite student who appeared with him as, as his accompanist during his recitals in the salons of Paris. Hermann charmed everyone with his talent and good looks. Newspapers idolized him. He was met a great number of artists and writers, including Georgia Sand, who made frequent mention of him in her writings. Paris went into raptures over this young virtuoso of extraordinary talent. Skipping ahead, success took its toll on Cohen's character. Capricious, proud, arrogant, and affected, he began to live hedonistic life. He was unkind and nasty in his dealings with his mother, brother, and those nearest to him. He kept back company, a spiritual wreck he found to bouts of melancholy. His departure for Geneva to join his beloved master only deepened his depression. At last, after several months, he succeeded in rejoining Lisette, but Herman's tumultuous life and addiction to the gaming tables in Geneva brought him more and more grief. He traveled widely throughout Europe, made trips to Italy and England, then returned once more to France. In May of 1847, Prince Mosoka was seeking a choir director for San Valery's church on Rue Bourgin in Paris. Even though Cohen was a Jew, he willingly took the position. He had debts to pay after all, and his choir was charged with the task of solemnizing a Friday benediction service in honor of our Blessed Mother. Cohen watched attentively as the people prayed in church. The strange rites were entirely beyond his kin, and yet somehow he felt drawn to them. The extraordinary concentration of the faithful had an increasingly infectious effect on him. Near the end of the celebration, his gaze fell on the altar where, in the midst of the flowers and lights, there stood a golden object containing a shining, light, little white circle. When the celebrant raised the object in order to bless the people, all fell reverently to their knees. Cohen did not understand this gesture of blessing the faithful with the blessed sacrament, and yet felt himself deeply stirred and touched by some unknown power. I had the particular impression of being excluded from this, as though the blessings were not for me. 
He later says, This meeting with Christ in the Blessed Sacrament decided the musician's fate. Many times feeling drawn by strange street sweet power. He went back to church. Finally, he dropped to his knees without knowing whom he was kneeling before. From his lips flowed the following spontaneous prayer, Who are you, Lord? What am I to do? Finally, he wrote, after surmounting many obstacles, I made the acquaintance of Abbot Legrand, legal advisor to the Archbishop of Paris. I told him what was taking place within me. After listening to me, he told me to stay calm, to persevere in my present disposition, to trust in the path that the providence would, without fail, reveal to me. So he ends up converting. He ends up becoming a Carmelite priest. And ultimately, he ends up getting rejected by his family. And this is the background you need to know in order to continue this story, the message of hope that I want to end you with. So, Herman Cohen, a Carmelite priest. I'm going to read this passage from you. And this passage uh, will refer to I. I have translated things like that. It's not me. I'm referring to whoever wrote this. Father Herman Cohen's mother's mother died without receiving holy baptism. Now, there's something to remember is that here, Father Cohen, his only desire in life was his mother's salvation. That was his only desire. He wanted her to be saved, yet after his conversion, his family rejected him. He was ostracized from his family. He tried to convert them. He tried to preach to them the faith, but they rejected him. And especially his mother, who disowned him. It's very sad, but he was rejected by his own mother. So, his only desire in life was the salvation of his mother's soul. He would pray and consecrate his mother to her, to the Blessed Virgin Mary, many times. So, the continuing. In the eyes of the unwise, she died as an unconverted Jewess, in spite of the many prayers offered for her by her priestly son. I have translated the following from his life, which will be of interest for all of us, who pray for souls that seem to live and die without the grace of conversion. Note that Father Herman had consecrated his mother to Our Lady hundreds of times and offered many prayers for her salvation. He never lost hope in his mother's cause. Here is the message of hope. Here is the letter from the life, from his life. And think about this. And I want you to think about your deceased loved ones. I want you to think about family members that you love, that you want to become Catholic. Ones that who have already died and it's too late for them. Those who you know now, those who are your friends, your family, your co-workers. I want you to think about these people while I read this. The last moments for Mrs. Cohen arrived on the 13th of December, 1855. Father Herman was preaching Advent in Lyons at the time, and he announced the sad news to his friends in these terms. Quote, God has struck a terrible blow to my heart. My poor mother is dead, and I remain in incertitude. However, we have so much pray that we must hope that something has passed between her soul and God during these last moments that we cannot know about. We can easily imagine the pain of Father Herman and learning of the death of his mother. He had so much prayed and had so much had prayers said for her conversion. And she came to appear before the tribunal of God without having received holy baptism. I also have a mother, will he write one day. I have left her to follow Jesus Christ. She no longer calls me her good son. Already her hair is silvered. Already her brow is furrowed. 
and I am afraid to see her die. Oh, no, I would not like to see her die before loving Jesus Christ. And already for many years I await for my mother, that which Monica awaited for Augustine. God seemed to have desired all his prayers, despised all his prayers, and rejected his loving and legitimate desires. His faith and his love were put through a harsh trial. Nevertheless, if his sorrow was deep, his hope and the infinite goodness of God would not allow itself to be struck down. A short time later, he confided to the cure of ours, St. John Vianney, his disquiet about the death of his poor mother, who died without the grace of baptism. Hope, replied the man of God, hope you will receive one day on the feast of the Immaculate Conception, a letter that will bring you great consolation. These words were almost forgotten when on the 8th of December, 1861, six years after her death, a father of the company of Jesus handed to Father Hernan the following letter. The person who wrote this letter died in the odor of sanctity. She was well known in the religious and ascetical world by her written works on the Eucharist. The letter read, On the 18th of October, after Holy Communion, I found myself in one of those moments of intimate union with our Lord where he had made me so feel his presence in the sacrament of his love that faith seemed no longer necessary to believe him there. After a short time, he had me hear his voice and he wanted to give me some explanation relative to a conversation that I had the night before. I remember that in that conversation, one of my friends had manifested her surprise that our Lord who had promised to accord everything to prayer had, however, remained deaf to those of Reverend Father Herman who had so many times addressed him to obtain the conversion of his mother. Her surprise went almost as far as discontentment, and I had had difficulty in having her understand that we must adore the justice of God and not to seek to penetrate its secrets. I dared to ask of my Jesus how it was that he, who was goodness itself, had been able to resist the prayers of Father Herman and not grant the conversion of his mother. This was our Lord's response. Why does Anna always want to sound the secrets of my secrets of my justice? And why does she seek to penetrate mysteries that she cannot comprehend? Tell her that I do not owe my grace to anyone, that I give it to whom I please, and that in acting in this way I do not cease to be just in justice itself but that she may know that rather than not keep the promises that I have made of to prayer, I will upset heaven and earth, and that every prayer that my glory and the salvation of souls for object is always heard when it is clothed in the necessary qualities. He added, And to prove to you this truth, I willingly make known that which passed at the moment of the death of the mother of Father Herman. My Jesus then enlightened me with the ray of his divine light and had me understand, or rather to see in him, that which I want to try to relate. At the moment where the mother of Father Herman was on the point of rendering her last breath, at the moment that she seemed deprived of awareness, almost without life, Mary, our good mother, presented herself before her divine son, and prostrate at his feet, she said to him, quote, Pardon! And mercy, O my son, for this soul who is going to perish yet another instant, and she will be lost, lost for eternity. I beseech you, 
Do for the mother of my servant Herman that which you would like to be done for your own. If she was in her place, and if you were in his, the soul of his mother is his most precious good. He has consecrated her to me a thousand times. He has consecrated her to the tenderness and solitude of my heart. Could I suffer her to perish? No, no, this soul is mine. I will it. I claim it as an inheritance, as the price of your blood and of my suffering at the foot of your cross. End quote. Hardly had the sacred suppliant ceased speaking when a strong, powerful grace came forth from the source of all graces, from the adorable heart of our Jesus, and came to enlighten the soul of the poor dying Jewess. Instantly, triumphing over her stubbornness and resistance. This soul immediately turned herself with loving confidence toward him whose mercy had pursued her as far as the arms of death and said to him, quote, O oh, Jesus, God of the Christians, God whom my son adores, I believe, I hope in thee, have pity on me. In this cry, heard by God alone, and which came from this intimate depth of the heart of the dying woman, where enclosed the sincere sorrow for her obstination and for her sins, the desire of baptism. The express will to receive it and to live according to rules and precepts of our holy religion, if she had been able to return to life. This leap of faith and hope in Jesus was the last sentiment of that soul. It was made at the moment when she brought toward the throne of the divine mercy, Breaking away the weak bonds which had held her to her mortal casing, she fell at the feet of him who had been her savior a moment before being her judge. After having showed me all these things, our Lord added, Make this known to Father Herman. It is a consolation that I wish to accord to his long sorrow, so that he will bless and have blessed everywhere the goodness of the heart of my mother and her power over mine. Totally unknown to Reverend Father Herman, the poor invalid who has now just now penned these lines and happy is happy to think that she has perhaps spread a little consolation and balm on the still bleeding wound of the heart of this son and priest. She dares to ask the alms of his fervent prayers, and she likes to believe that he will not refuse to one who, even though unknown to him, is united to him by the sacred bonds of the same faith and of the same hopes. What appears to add great authority to this letter is that it has been announced six years in advance by the venerable cure of ours. And that's the end of that section. And that is so beautiful. What a beautiful thing is Our Lady. That she loves us with such a love that she will stand at the moment of our death to fight for us, to fight for our souls. Just think about that. Think about Our Lady and her love for us. And think about the fact that it is never too late to pray. It was the continuing prayer of Father Herman. It was the continuing of his prayers. He prayed from the moment that he converted. Up until after her death, he continued to pray for his mother. That she received the grace of baptism. That she received the grace of conversion. And it is by that prayer, it is by the continuing of the prayer, the continuing consecration 
of his mother to the Blessed Virgin, that she was saved. Because, not because of ignorance, because remember, she was not ignorant of the faith. Father Herman tried to convert her over and over again, tried and tried and tried. But it was by the act of Our Lady at the end of her life to reveal to her the truth of the faith that she converted, that she held to the truth of the gospel. She was not saved by ignorance. She was saved by the true faith. This is a big deal. And this is the same thing that applies to those who die in suicide, to those who die in many other things that are like that. I want to point that out because a common objection people will make was like, okay, what about people who are insane? People who lose their mind. Now, if they people who are not according to their mind, they they have they are crazy or they're suicidal, they have depression. They have these kind of things that are wrong with them. I think that it's important to note that God's judgments are perfect. God is perfectly merciful. He is perfectly just. He does not make mistakes. And so if someone is completely ignorant of the faith, of no fault of their own, and they hold true to the best of their ability, God will grant them the grace because God wills that all men be saved. God gives sufficient grace that every single person could be saved. It is according to their subjective nature of receiving that grace and responding to that grace and corresponding to that grace of how they can be saved. So if someone commits suicide, objectively speaking, suicide is a mortal sin. It is grave matter. It is self-murder. is murder of the self. That is a mortal sin. However, if someone was crazy and they killed themselves by mistake or because they didn't know, because they had a depression that we can't understand, well, God will take that into effect. But what we can judge, we cannot canonize these people. What we can judge is the objective nature. We can only say, yes, they did this act. Let's pray that they converted. Because we don't know what happens from the moment that they pull the trigger before they jump off that bridge, before they do whatever it is in the moment of their death. Because remember, death is not the same thing as medical death. Death is a separation of the body and soul. We don't know when that happens. Most theologians say about three hours. The Jews thought three days. We don't know. So God can act within that time. He can have and inspire contrition in that person's soul. And we must pray that that happens. We must pray that God sends an angel. He sends his blessed mother. He sends himself. He goes himself and preaches the gospel to these people before they die. We can pray for that. And we should pray for that. But what we can judge is the externals. We cannot judge the state of someone's soul. We cannot judge their interior disposition, their culpability. We can only judge the exteriors. And what we know by the church is that there is no salvation outside the church. What we know is that there's no salvation outside of baptism. And that all must be saved. And this is why it is so important to do this. 
If God wants to grant whatever grace he desires, that is between him and the soul and the individual soul. So we let us pray for these souls. Let us evangelize because it is so necessary. It's so necessary for the salvation of souls that we evangelize. How much must we hate our brothers and sisters, our fathers and mothers, our siblings, our children, to not preach them the gospel, to not sacrifice everything we can for those souls? Our Lady of Fatima said, that told the, the three children, that many souls go to hell because no one prays and fasts and does penance for them. So we must do praying, fasting, and do penance. We must do it. Because lest we worry about this for other people, but we lose our own soul. And that could be a whole topic in itself, the fewness of the saved. Because so few Christians will be saved. This is a big deal. Now, if there are any objections to what I've been saying, if there's any questions, comments, or concerns, uh, feel free to leave them in the comment section down below. If you're watching live, you can comment them right now um, and I'll respond to them and then we'll close out with a prayer. And I, I won't do the Athanasian Creed, though I'll leave it in the description if you want to pray the Athanasian Creed. The Athanasian Creed is a legitimate creed of the church, which is perfectly good to use. I also want to point out that I got a lot of this information from Catholicism.org. And so that's a great place to go for more information. But we'll close out with a prayer now. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost, amen. O merciful Queen of the Rosary of Pompeii, thou, the seat of wisdom, hast established a throne of fresh mercy in the land that was once pagan, in order to draw all nations to salvation by means of the chaplet of mystical roses. Remember that thy divine Son hath left us this saying, Other sheep I have that are not of this fold, them also must I bring. And they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Remember likewise that on Calvary thou didst become our co-redemptrix, by virtue of the crucifixion of thy heart, cooperating with thy crucified Son in the salvation of the world. And from that day thou didst become the restorer of the human race, the refuge of sinners, and the mother of all mankind. Behold, dear mother, how many souls are lost every hour. Behold how countless millions of those who dwell in India, in China, and in barbarous regions do not know our Lord Jesus Christ. See, too, how many others are indeed Christians and are nevertheless far from the bosom of Mother Church, which is Catholic, Apostolic, and Roman. O Mary, powerful mediator, advocate of the human race, full of love for us who are mortals, the life of our hearts, blessed Virgin of the Rosary of Pompeii, graciously hear our prayers. Let not the precious blood and the fruits of redemption be lost for so many souls. From thy chosen shrine in Pompeii, where thou dost nothing else save dispense heaven's favors upon the afflicted, grant that a ray of thy heavenly light may shine forth to enlighten those many blinded understandings and to enkindle so many cold hearts. Intercede with thy divine Son and obtain grace for all the pagans, Jews, heretics, and schismatics in the whole world to receive supernatural light and to enter with joy into the bosom of the true church. Hear the confident prayer of the Supreme Pontiff that all nations may be joined in the one faith, may know and love Jesus Christ, the blessed fruit of thy womb, who liveth and reigneth with the Father and the Holy Spirit, world without end. And then all men shall love thee also. 
thou who art the salvation of the world, arbiter and dispenser of the treasuries of God, and queen of mercy in the valley of Pompeii, and glorifying thee the queen of victories, who by means of thy rosary dost trample upon all heresies. They shall acknowledge that thou givest life to all the nations, since there must be a fulfillment of the prophecy in the gospel. All generations shall call me blessed. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. O my Jesus, forgive us our sins, save us from the fires of hell. Lead all souls to heaven, especially those in most need of thy mercy. Father Herman, pray for us. Our Lady of Pompeii, pray for us. Our Lady of the Rosary, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.